Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the RCMP is spying on Canadian cell phones, and they're saying we should just trust them that they're not doing it to people that don't deserve it. Also, United Conservative Party leadership candidate Brian Jean and Jasmine Moulton on fact-checking the left. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is going to be a little bit of a busier show today. We've got my new colleague Jasmine Moulton coming up on the program to talk about her show, Reality Check, debunking the lefts and the media's lies and misinformation. Also going to be speaking later on with United Conservative Party leadership candidate Brian Jean. And I want to talk about this RCMP cell phone spying business because it's quite a significant story and it might not be all that surprising, but I think it is still one we need to address. And, and Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister's response to it has been lackluster at best. But I want to, just before we get into that, follow up on a discussion that I had on a previous show this week that I've had a lot of people asking me more and more questions about. So I want to take an opportunity to clear it up a little bit. It's about my discussion of the federal government easing the mask mandate for airports. Now, there are a few key words here, and I, I want to make sure I'm stressing them. They did not get rid of the mask mandate for airports. They eased them, and they didn't get rid of the mask mandate for air travel in in general, masking on planes remains unchanged. This refers to airports specifically. And the point that I was making is that the federal government eased the mask mandate for airports, but didn't go all the way. And more importantly, that individual airports are behaving differently about this. So here's the change. And I'll look exactly at the government's website. And so far as I can tell, they didn't announce this change anywhere. They didn't put it in a press release. They just made the change. And I learned about it from an airport website. But nevertheless, on Transport Canada's website, mask requirements for traveling within Canada by air. It says, you will be asked to wear a mask or face covering at the security screening checkpoints, at the boarding gate, during the flight when you can't physically distance from others, when asked by an airline employee, a public health official, staff from the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, or a Canada Border Services Agency officer. And it goes on to say that you will be asked uh, to wear one at the security screening process, but you might have to take it off at the security screening process, and you have to wear it when you're walking onto the plane, but you'll have to take it off when you're boarding when they're checking your ID. So obviously there are things that don't make sense here, but not listed in this is when you're walking around in the airport, when you're sitting at the gate, when you are doing anything at the airport, apart from going through security, boarding, getting on the plane or going through customs, which admittedly are significant parts of the process. But what I was saying is that if you have some seven hour layover at Pearson, by the government's own standards right now, you don't need to wear a mask when you're sitting around waiting for that flight when you used to. And if you look at the Montreal Airport website, uh, YUL, they say masks continue to be required by the government of Canada for all regulatory processes, i.e. at checkpoints, at boarding, during the flight, and at the customs processing area. So I wasn't saying that there are no mask mandates at all. I was saying that the federal government quietly eased these rules, didn't draw any attention to it, 
And it is something that I don't even give them credit for because it's like the minimum. It's, the, it's below the bare minimum. But I was just making a statement of fact that I only learned about this thing when I was walking around at Montreal Airport and was amazed that like even staff weren't wearing masks. And then I looked into it further and saw that this is being very unevenly enforced depending on where you are. So you can take from this information whatever you're going to take. But my experience was when I was walking around Pearson Airport without a mask, no one really cared and no one brought, brought it up. So uh, take from that what you will. But it was on June 18th. And again, they, they still aren't saying you no longer need to wear a mask when you're doing this 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 they're just saying it the other way like you only need to be wearing a mask when you are doing this stuff so it's the negative situation there that you can draw into and focus on so nevertheless i want to talk about this rcmp spying situation and marco mendicino not really seeming to care about it. And the RCMP has basically said, just trust us. What's come out in the last week in particular is that the RCMP has been using spyware to access people's communications on their cell phones for 20 years. But more recently, they've started to use this other device, this other method referred to as on-device investigation tools, which basically is spyware that allows police to access text messages, even to surreptitiously turn on a cell phone's camera or microphone. And you may say, well, you know what? I don't really care if a terrorist is getting their communications monitored by the government. And, you know, that's fair. If someone is uh, actionably working on something that is terrorism or organized crime, there's a very, very significant and clear evidence chain. Police go to a judge and get a warrant for this. I think that probably fits the bill of being a legitimate use of such technology. The problem is that we know in the past police have cast a very wide net with these things. Just look at their use of Clearview AI, a very contentious thing that effectively builds a national database of people's faces to tie them to social media posts. And it's so that your data exists on these government servers, actually a private company servers. And there's a reason that Clearview has been rejected. And it was interesting looking at this one story in Global News that plucked out some details where uh, the RCMP was saying, oh, no, 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 we're using Canadian-made technology. It's Canadian-made technology. Great. So even when police are spying on us, we're to be happy that it's apparently Canadian content that's facilitating it. And there's a lot of uncertainty about how many times this has happened, about the raw numbers here. And I want to talk about a little bit of this in detail here, because originally the RCMP said, it had used on-device investigation tools, so that's the spyware, 10 times between 2017 and 2018. And then Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner that we know runs interference for the Liberals, filed documents that said the number was actually higher, that they used it in 32 investigations, targeting 49 individual devices in 2017 alone. But still, oh, no, 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 it's only in extremely limited cases, only used for serious criminal offenses, and only if a judge approved. And they are saying it's always targeted, it's time limited, it's never to conduct unwarranted or mass surveillance. I would be very interested in seeing, and I don't know if there's any evidence of this that we could find yet, but I'd be very interested in seeing if they use this spyware to deal with the Freedom Convoy. 
And the reason I bring that up is that of several of the organizers that I interviewed for my book, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, they were always very, very aware of the fact that intelligence agencies could be spying on them. And they had all of these things that they tried to do to throw them off. Like when they were going into their meetings, they would leave their phones in a box outside the room. And at one point, there was a, a camera in a room across the road and again, it could have been press, it could have been police, it could have been no one, but people were concerned this was an investigation, and they were concerned that the rooms they were using were bugged and all of that. And and all of this, I mean, Daniel Bulford, who was a former RCMP officer, and he was one of the security leads for the convoy, a lot of this was him saying, if I were investigating us, this is how I would do it. I, I, that was the sense I got from talking to some other people. But nevertheless, the whole point here is that what they've done in the past suggests they would do this now. And I don't trust them when they say, well, we're only using this in certain circumstances. Yeah, we're being really good. We're being really nice. Yeah, we're, we're not doing it to anyone that doesn't deserve it and anyone that doesn't have it coming. Your privacy rights do not depend on your moral virtue. And as long as it's tied to clear-cut lawlessness, absolutely. But I would love to hear from them uh, uh, owning up to what they have used this for. Are we just talking about terrorism? If so, the wording of terrorism matters a great deal because you had some people that said the convoy was terrorism. And most people in this country, I don't think, have significant faith in the RCMP. And the stuff that happened with the Porta Peak investigation, where we learned how deeply Brenda Lucky was really trying to make things easy for the liberals, that does not exactly sound like something that should be inviting a lot of confidence in the RCMP's ability to pick and choose how to handle investigations when we already know that they will put, when needed, or when they feel they need it, the liberal partisan goals above the integrity of the investigation, at least at the very top. And we're so grateful that Commissioner Lucky had pushback from the officers in Nova Scotia when that happened. So what she has not done is owned up to the discrepancy between the information they provided in June and what they shared with committee a couple of days ago, which makes me think, what else are they not telling us? Now, Canada's former privacy watchdog says he's surprised by it. This is uh, Daniel Terrien, who was the privacy commissioner until last year. So he was the privacy commissioner when all this was happening. And he said, you know, normally if there's something like this, the RCMP would go to the privacy commissioner and say, hey, this is what we're thinking. But this didn't happen. So he, he's saying, like, this is intrusive. Like, why did the privacy commissioner not weigh in on this? And I would say, yes, what's the point of having a privacy commissioner if when you are encroaching on the privacy rights of Canadians, you don't think, hey, you know, maybe it's worth giving the privacy commissioner a call. Uh, I mean, maybe they didn't need to. Maybe they just, you know, already tapped his phone and heard what he was saying to other people and said, oh, yeah, yeah, he won't, he won't be on board with this. So let's, let's not ask him. To be clear, I have no evidence they tapped the privacy commissioner's phone. This is what we call a joke, which in 2022 you have to spell out in such immensely clear detail to people uh, because otherwise they will take it the wrong way in bad faith. But what we are looking at here is a police force that's saying to us, yes, we're doing this. No, we didn't tell you about it, but just trust us. And I am not going to go down so easily on that. And I don't think Canadians should either. We'll be back in just a moment here. When we come back, we'll talk to United Conservative Party leadership candidate Brian Jean. 
You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We've been talking on and off about the UCP leadership race in Alberta. Now, this is a particularly interesting race because unlike the federal conservative leadership race, this one is going to be deciding the premiership of Alberta, not just the leadership of the UCP. Whomever wins the leadership in October is going to go right to the premier seat, replacing Jason Kenney. And then they'll have to try to renew that term in an election up against uh, Rachel Notley and the NDP. And why this is an interesting dynamic is because the stakes are a lot higher. And we've seen Danielle Smith, who has been outside politics, come in and do very well, talking about the importance of uh, really resisting the Kenny government's COVID policies, talking about Alberta sovereignty. Uh, Brian Jean, the former Wild Rose leader, actually, they're both former Wild Rose leaders. He's now been elected as a UCP MLA in a by-election, very critical of Jason Kenney. He's been very critical of the COVID situation, but he's also tried to be a lot more broad in his appeal compared to Danielle Smith. And it's been interesting to see the contrast between these two. We've had uh, Danielle Smith on the show. We've also had Rebecca Schultz on the show. Interestingly enough, I asked Leela here a while back if uh, she would come on the show, and her campaign said, why don't you just send us a questionnaire and we'll, you know, fill it out and send it back to you. And I'm like, well, that, like, what do I do? Just read that on my show? No. And I've asked and haven't been able to to get her on. So other requests have gone to other candidates as well. But in any case, let me now bring into the program UCP MLA from up in Fort McMurray and also UCP leadership candidate, Brian Jean. Brian, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start first off with the theme of your campaign here. You're talking about autonomy for Alberta, but you're distinguishing this from the sovereignty and separation debate. So what is it that your campaign is really about? And what is it that autonomy is about in your eyes? Well, autonomy and sovereignty are a little bit different. And, you know, I'm not about building walls. I'm about tearing them down and bringing people together. Autonomy is about a series of freedoms, of personal autonomy, my body, my choice, financial autonomy, you know, I believe people should own houses, own businesses, own, have individual ownership of things. I think that's a better scenario and makes them feel freer and happier. And, and of course, that's part of my theme of my campaign as well. And, and not just financial autonomy, uh, employment autonomy, but also community autonomy. As a Christian, you know, I, I think it's very important that we protect people's rights to be able to you know, enjoy uh, the freedoms that they have. I, for instance, uh, was appalled at the arrest of a pastor. It uh, never would happen under, under a Brian Jean-led government ever, nor would we ever shutter ch churches. That's just, in my opinion, religious persecution. I thought so at the time. I continue to think that now, and it would never happen under a Brian Jean government. And that's why I wanted to make sure autonomy was clear in people's minds. I'm, I'm not interested in sovereignty or separation. I am interested in making sure that we have as many rights as we possibly can here in Alberta, for Albertans, not just for Alberta, but for Albertans. And that's why I want also more autonomy for Albertans within Canada. And that means if other Canadians get to enjoy the, the rights and privileges that Canada give them, we should get the same rights and privileges. And right now we don't, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether it's our pension issues or, you know, many different opportunities in other provinces that we don't have here in Alberta. I'm going to make sure that we have all the opportunities that any other Canadian has in any other province. And I think that's very important. And that's what it's about. It's about autonomy, about freedom, personal freedom. Freedom to make choices, freedom to be without government intervention, freedom to know that you get up in the day, in the morning, that you're going to be happier and healthier. Because, you know, I've been, made it very clear that the 
the theme of my campaign is autonomy, but it's also the end goal is to be happier and healthier, to be more free, most free and most prosperous people in Canada and the world. And you know what you want freedom? Well, if you want health and you want happiness, you have to have freedom. It's very clear. If you want to have happiness, you have to have a good healthcare system. That's very clear. You have to make sure that people are wealthy and prosperous or else they're not gonna be able to make the decisions they want as far as autonomy goes. And autonomy is about good conservative principles of people making their own decisions for their own life based on their own priorities. And that's what it's all about for me, whether it's personal choice, whether it's business community, whether it's your, your religious or other community, you deserve the freedom to decide what you want to decide for your future, your priorities, your community priorities, uh, your personal priorities, your family priorities. Those things government should stay out of and other people should stay out of, and you should be able to enjoy them as much as possible. And that's what autonomy is for me. It's about staying in Canada, about trying to fix Canada. I know it's broken, there's no question. I think everybody recognizes that. But trying to fix Canada through a proper negotiation, sitting down at the constitutional table and trying to get a fair deal. Because right now we're too afraid of getting any deal at all. So we're thinking that you know we're gonna be pressured and, and, and frankly uh, bullied by the bigger provinces. It's not the case. Right now is a tremendous opportunity because every province in Canada knows that they're not getting enough healthcare funding based upon what the federal government's requiring. Every, every, uh, almost every government in Canada recognizes that the pipeline ban is absolutely an infringement on our section 92 rights under the constitution. And, you know, all of these things are actually guiding our principles of change. And what I'm saying there is in particular, I've been working on this particular passion to open up the constitution through equalization. That was the tool we used. And, you know, as Wild Rose leader, we talked about making sure that we could open up the Constitution so we could get to that point where more Albertans could have more autonomy and more freedoms. And, and we're going to push that through. Let's talk about the equalization aspect specifically. We know that Albertans overwhelmingly voted to uh, really reevaluate the equalization uh, system that we have right now. And obviously the prevailing thesis is that when a province comes together like that and votes in such a way, the federal government has to negotiate. But a duty to negotiate, a constitutional duty to negotiate is not a duty or requirement to give any concession. And, and the Liberals have been consistently resistant to, I, I think, res respecting a a lot of the concerns that Albertans have. So what would you do differently or what would you do to actually get what it is that Alberta wants and needs from the federal government at that negotiating table? I'm glad you asked that because other candidates are talking about getting angry and what we're going to do up to a certain point, but they have no, no answers for what happens afterwards. So they're riling people up, getting people mad for no reason. We live in a, an amazing country, it's a free country, and the Constitution clearly lays out that under Section 46, if, if a majority of a population in a certain area is dissatisfied with the current Confederation um, and how they're being treated under Confederation, we can send notice after receiving a clear mandate from the people, a majority of the people, a good majority, we can send that mandate to the people under the Section 46 notice, and they have to sit down and negotiate with us. And if they don't, then we go to the Supreme Court of Canada and ask for a reference. Listen, you know, let's be clear here. I'm the only lawyer, litigator, person that spent 10 years practicing the law here in Alberta. I know how it works. I'm not guessing it. I don't have to talk to another um, government bureaucrat lawyer to tell me how to pursue this and how to go forward. I've spent enough time understanding both 10 years federally as a member of parliament, as a parliamentary secretary, and as a practicing law in Alberta for 10 years. And then as a business person, I know what Albertans want. They want, want more autonomy, more freedom, less 
oversight and overwatch from Ottawa. I mean, that's where all the gatekeepers are. That's what we have to remove from. But, but if Alberta's the constitution life. gets them to the table, what do you do at the table that will get that change you need? Get the rest of the provinces on side to get better hospital, better healthcare funding, get more rights in the Senate and the House of Commons so we actually have equal votes across the country. There are so many things that we need to change. The fiscal imbalance is clearly there. Equalization is one of those things. The rest of the provinces, the premiers are ready to go to the table over the pipeline ban. We're ready. Um, you know, you have to wait. Timing is everything. And we started this process as Wild Rose leader on equalization referendum. I think five years ago, six years ago, almost now, I got a, you know, three economists from across the country to recognize that we're sending $20 billion more per year to Ottawa than we get back in services. Um, and uh, we have to do something about it. That, that is absolutely essential. And right now is a great time to do it. All the other provinces are ready to sit down and Albertans are too. But if they don't listen, if they don't agree to negotiate, where are we going to be? Well, I think Albertans are going to be angry. I'm, I know I would be if they didn't sit down and talk to me, if they just told us to buzz off. That's when we have to make the next step. And that's when Albertans get to decide whether we use every single tool in our toolbox to establish our autonomy, to establish our rights to Section 92, our resources, our people, our healthcare, our, our education. You know, some people are making up stories about Trudeau coming in here and taking our kids and forcing them to be vaxxed and at school in order to continue school. Well, folks, people are lying to you. Justin Trudeau has no ability to do anything with our kids in schools or schools. He has no ability to do so to infringe in our lives. And we have to stop listening to the chatter out there and just deal with what we need to deal with. And that is to renegotiate the constitution so that Albertans feel they're part of confederation. And if they don't agree to us doing that, then we're gonna be using other tools that are available at our disposal. And I know what those tools are and we will do whatever we need to do in order to get those tools to the people of Alberta and make a decision on how we go forward after that. But I don't think Canada wants to be in a position where they're going to make Albertans angry. No, I, I would agree in general with that, but I, I'm still not getting a sense of the how, because I agree that getting to the table is itself an important step in the process here. And I also appreciate that you're saying, let's not look at equalization in isolation. Let's also talk about healthcare. Let's also talk about representation. So if you're going to have this full-scale discussion, what are the red lines for you? Because a negotiation is give and take. What are the things that you will absolutely not compromise on? And what are the things that you really expect the government to hand, hand over that are without that, in, in your view, not a real good faith negotiation? Well, I look at this the same as I look at a corporate negotiation or a, a relationship negotiation. And that is people sit down at the table in order to, try, order to try to settle things, to solve things so they can move on together. I don't think we have to look at a divorce and go nuclear immediately. That's what some people are suggesting. I think what we need to do is sit down and negotiate. What forces them to negotiate? The opportunity to continue on as the prime minister and the premier in government, that's what helps them continue the opportunity. But, but I'm asking if, if what they don't listen to at us, the negotiating table. The, uh, let's assume that we've gotten there. What do you do at that table that gets you the changes that you're promising Albertans? Bring, find all the things that bring us together as a country in each province, because like I said, there's a lot of things that people are dissatisfied with right now. There's some things they're satisfied with. For instance, PEI has about 40,000 people or so per MP. Alberta has 120,000 people per MP. Well, PEI is probably satisfied with that, but places like Ontario aren't. Places like Quebec aren't. They're never going to be satisfied with their representation, no matter what happens, unless they're on their own. Let's be clear. Um, we have to find that commonality, those things that bring us together so we can figure out how to go forward. 
the Supreme Court of Canada in the reference case in Quebec has laid out a path. Now, I will tell you the, the Laurentian elite, the Ottawa entitled, they're the ones that made sure, along with the Supreme Court of Canada, that there was a path ready for the people of Quebec to decide on how they wanted to go forward. And what would happen for the people of Quebec if indeed there was a 51, 60% leverage like we had here in Alberta that said, we want to open up the constitution, we want to change, we want to leave. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada laid out a path, according to section 46 of the constitution, giving notice, legal notice, by the way, of the necessity to negotiate that path for the people of Quebec. Little did they understand that the people of Alberta would be using that same path in order to force negotiations and to take the next step and find those tools that we need to do. I want to have our own pension plan. I want to have our own unemployment insurance plan. Why? Because right now we're paying far more than we need to. That's an unmentioned equalization. We're paying far more in our pension plan and in our unemployment insurance plan because of our nature of our population and how much we work and, and how much we make compared to other places. Well, I understand that, but that's still equalization. The people that work longer hours need more support systems. They need better uh, daycare for their children. They need to make sure that they have better mental supports, better, better health supports. We need more staying here in Alberta to support the type of lifestyle we have. And they need to stop taking that $20 billion a year and spreading it out to their friends. That will be the first thing we deal with. But there's so many other things and the rest of Canada are ready. But who forces this? Well, just like anybody forces it, we have a judge in cases of a divorce or mediation or separation or a, a, a corporate commercial contract that needs to be re renegotiated, we have a judge. This is the rule of law that we're guided by here in, here in Canada. And, and the rule of law is guided substantially or primarily by the Supreme Court of Canada. They will make sure that Albertans have the rights as they're supposed to under the constitution. And they will make sure that we have the opportunity to have that discussion about what the next step is to renegotiate the constitution because they need to protect that for the people of Quebec. We're just going to use it first. And we really appreciate them laying out the path for us and being clear on how we can go about it to get our fair treatment from the people of Canada. And, and frankly, it's not the people of Canada. It's more the liberal politicians from out east. They seem to want to pick on Albertans because it gets them more votes there. And I know it does. And that's what disgusts me is, is right now the, the prime minister and the liberal caucus are beating up Albertans and primarily the West, rural West, in order to get votes in Quebec and Ontario and Eastern Canada. Now, who wants to support a prime minister or a premier that divides people? We need to find the things that bring people together. And that's what I'm going to do as the premier of Alberta. I'm going to bring people together, find the things that we have in common and instead of dividing us, and that's where we need to go with our path in the future is bringing Albertans together to be solid, to be strong, because we've got a lot of work ahead of us. You mentioned earlier, Brian, that you uh, significantly and strongly oppose the, the jailing of pastors, the shuttering of churches, and I think that's a, a very important position to take. What about some of the broader COVID policies here? Because I, I know Premier Kenny, when he sort of addressed why he thought the membership turned on him, he, he thought it was entirely about the COVID situation. And I think there are some disagreements about whether that was really the limitation of the frustrations. But vaccine passports, are, could you take them off the table entirely? as premier yes for the need for vaccine passports in alberta 100 gone and uh, restrictions in general capacity restrictions i, I want to be clear that religious persecution is what happened here in alberta I, I really believe that as a christian as a born again christian i would never do that to any religion because that is religious persecution it's unacceptable lockdowns as a whole are extremely hurtful to people's mental and physical health it is extremely hurtful and painful for families. 
and for businesses, and it should not happen. So, you know, for me, I just, uh, I think lockdowns should be a resort that we never ever um, fall into. And to be honest, I'm the only candidate that's come forward with, yes, we will not have lockdowns, but not only that, I will bind future governments, future premiers to make sure if they try to do a lockdown, which we can never stop, let's be clear. I can tell you what I'm going to do or not do, but I can't tell you what the next person's going to do unless I put a whole bunch of blockades and barricades in front of them. And I propose that people are not watching that. But what I proposed is let's make sure that every emergency act, anytime anybody has the opportunity to open up and close things, open up the emergency act and close down people's businesses or homes. Well, they have to make sure that they're transparent on those decisions. So no more cabinet secrets, which is going on right now and has been going on for two years. No more cabinet secrets on that stuff at all. And, and just make sure that people understand why they're making the decisions and that caucus, the government caucus actually has to vote on it within two months of it being put in place and has to confirm that it's valid. And anything that happens, depending on what level of lockdown it is, there would be judicial inquiry, a public inquiry, a, a huge, huge uh, onerous provision on future governments. And the fact that it would be transparent cabinet decisions, I think people would change their mind very quickly about doing lockdowns because we've seen this, but is, is this all about lockdowns for Jason Kenney and the government? No, it's not. You know, let's be clear. Uh, before COVID came on the scene, you know, we were looking at a, a, a situation where the premier was not popular, where he was spiraling into a situation of non-confidence by the people of Alberta. And it's clear that COVID didn't help any, but um, we're at a crossroads right now. And if we don't renew and revitalize the party, the UCP, you know, the NDP are going to win. And I just can't have that. I was watching from the, from Fort Memorial as I took care of my family after, after leaving politics and taking care of three estates and, and my businesses and, and uh, the people of Fort Memorial mean a lot to me because obviously that's been my home for my entire life. And, and I think if Rachel Notley wins, we're going to lose uh, Fort Memorial. They're going to shut down my town. They're going to shut down a lot of what's going on in Alberta. And I just can't have that happen. An overwhelming NDP majority with Justin Trudeau in Ottawa will destroy my community and my province. And I can't let that happen. That's why I did what I did. That's why I wanted to renew the party. And that's why I'm so excited about the opportunity of possibly being premier, having that privilege and being able to take Albertans to that task, to the equalization formula, to where we were going five, six years ago on our path. And I have passion and purpose for that. It's not just, you know, oh, that's good policy about lockdowns or about churches or that's what I believe. That's what I believe. So it's not hard to put forward policies that you believe on, um, believe in, because those are the things that Albertans want to hear. They want to hear somebody that actually believes what they're doing, not just that they're doing it because the people are pushing that way. Let me just ask you one final question then on that note. You talked about Rachel Notley. If you win the leadership, you become the premier of Alberta, but you'll also have to run for re-election very soon after. There have been a lot of internal struggles in the UCP, a lot of people that have frustrations with the status quo under Premier Kenny. How confident are you that you could turn around these challenges in time to win a general election? Well, you know, there's been discussion about me saying I'd put Rachel Notley in my cabinet and I can't think of anything more ridiculous than having Rachel Notley make decisions for Albertans. And, and me suggesting that she's going to make somehow decisions for Albertans is ludicrous. Um, yeah, I, do I, people there, I never really understood what, how people interpreted that from what you actually said there. I know. I know what I said was, let's take the politics out of COVID because people are dying because politicians are playing politics with people's lives. Let's take the politics out of, you know what Rachel Notley did? 
She took the politics out of the fire when I was the opposition leader. I asked and she made sure that I was able to be briefed on everything. My staff knew what was going on. And all of a sudden I was in a situation where I knew everything that was going on. Both of us were working for the people of Fort McMurray and Alberta at the time. And she totally took politics out of it because I couldn't play politics. Not that I wanted to, but some people do. Some people, some politicians are prepared to play with people's lives in order for their own agenda. That's not acceptable. Why I wanted to do that for Rachel Notley and get her involved in COVID, only so she could listen and she couldn't play politics because it would stop the NDP from doing so. How do you play politics when you're actually privy to all of the information and you're there when the decisions are being made? Not only do you have to keep them confidential, but you can't play the political game that Rachel Notley has been playing. And, and we have to look beyond just the hard and fast, passionate partisanship of politics. We have to think smart about how we do things that are better for the people. And better for the people is certainly taking the politics out of very dangerous situations. You know, Winston Churchill did it. We did it at the time of Confederation when we when we were uh, drafting the Constitution. Um, we take politics out of it because it's better for the people. And would I want to put Rachel Char in charge of anything? Listen, the reason why I'm back right now and I put my family life on hold and my businesses and everything else on hold is because I don't want Rachel Notley to win the next election. I, I will do whatever I can as the premier and the leader of the UCP within the, the obligations and rights that we have as politicians to make sure that Rachel Notley does not form government and make sure that we unite the conservative movement here in Alberta behind the UCP and win the next election by an overwhelming majority so we can bring in the good policies for Albertans because you know what? It should be for Albertans. And, and other people have talked about what they would do. Well, let me tell you, look at my background and see where I have done things, where I have resigned my position and gave up a paycheck in order that we can unite these parties so we can bring them together into a movement. That's what I'm interested in because that movement should represent Albertans. And Albertans should be the beneficiary of every single decision that a premier, a cabinet, and a caucus make for them. UCP MLA and leadership candidate Brian Jean. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure as always. And great to, uh, great to be here. Hi to all your listeners. That was Brian Jean, UCP leadership candidate. We are going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we will talk about the importance of standing firm in truth and facts, especially in this era. That'll be with my colleague Jasmine Moulton. Straight ahead. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Jamming a few things in the show today, but there's been a lot that's going on and a lot of conversations I wanted to have. One of them with my new colleague, Jasmine Moulton, who just joined the True North team a couple of weeks ago and is hosting a new weekly show called Reality Check with Jasmine Moulton. And it's been great to have her aboard. Jasmine, thanks for coming on today. Great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I've met you a number of times in the past before you joined True North, and I, I think more recently, a lot of our listeners may have been familiar with you through your work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So you're a, a bit of a tax fighter, but what are the other issues that you care about that you're bringing to your new show? Well, I think I have a bit of a unique perspective, at least when it comes to the media world. I grew up on a farm in southwestern Ontario, so already that kind of <laughs> sets you apart from the you know, city centers where a lot of uh, media comes from. But I also ran a small business for a number of years. So um, after I, I started out on Parliament Hill, then as a lot of Hill staffers do, they, you know, 
enter the real world and get a real job off the hill. So I started a business, ran a small business, a small digital marketing firm in Toronto for a number of years um, before selling it to a firm out of New York. And so I'd say that small business uh, or just business matters generally are I'm really passionate about. Um, and that was actually what sparked my interest in the Canadian Taxpayers Federation as well. I remember uh, at the time, Kathleen Wynne was raising taxes in Ontario. It seemed like Justin Trudeau was raising taxes at the federal level. And I remember at the time, Kathleen Wynne, so I was hustling, I was working um, to put myself through school. I was running my business in Toronto. And I remember as the government you know, both at both the federal and provincial level seem to be colluding to make it harder to run a business. Um, Kathleen Wynne was also spending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, I can't remember, a lot of money to put this inflatable yellow duck in Lake Ontario. I don't know if any <laughs> of your listeners will remember that, but I just thought, why am I working so hard, you know, struggling to run my business, put myself through school, and all this tax money that I'm paying and as a business owner, you're keenly aware of just how much tax you pay, what's going into this inflatable yellow duck in Lake Ontario. So that was an <laughs> issue that put the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on my radar, uh, loved the work that they do, really passionate about their mission, um, wish there were more organizations like that in Canada, but uh, was, gen was very, uh, very proud of my work there. It is interesting how this rubber duck, and I remember the story well, as soon as you mentioned it there, how this became such a galvanizing issue. And it, it reminds me of this age-old truth that seems to be the case that it's not the big ticket items that always are the ones that really are the most jarring to people. It's the weird, quirky, memorable ones. I mean, $16 glass of orange juice now in the Canadian political parlance is, I think, ubiquitous. And it's not because $16 is all that much. I mean, it is for an orange juice, but it's just because of the absurdity of that and the disconnect between government and, and ordinary people. And same as the rubber duck. It's not the biggest line item in the budget. If you were to get rid of it, it wouldn't solve all the debt and deficit problems. But it's a reminder of the fact that these people don't spend money the way we all have to. Yeah, that's so true. Um, you know, and when you look at, unfortunately, I think Trudeau's adding over a billion dollars a day to the debt in Canada. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't know that or don't pay attention to that, but they certainly would remember Bev, Bev Oda's uh, $16 orange juice. Um, you know, really, uh, it is important, I think, to bring light to some of the bigger spending and bigger waste stories. Uh, but those small ones really do seem to get under taxpayer skin. Let's talk a little bit about the show itself, Reality Check, because you're not just talking about the issues and blathering into a microphone like I do. I, there's a place for that. Please don't turn off your uh, TV or podcast device or whatever you're watching or listening to this on. But you're taking a bit of a unique spin to the topics. What's the model of this show? So Reality Check, as you mentioned, is the new show that I've launched with True North. Really proud to be bringing this. I think it's great content that all of True North listeners uh, and subscribers will love. It's a new show. It's going to come out every Wednesday in podcast format, but also on YouTube. Uh, so you can watch or listen to the show. And basically what we do every week is uh, debunk some of the common fallacies that the left hold in Canada. So, um, you know, some of the favorite favorite uh, leftist talking points um, and specifically with a Canadian angle. So I love a lot of political shows. I listen to a lot um, out of the US because there aren't a ton in Canada. I mean, I love True North's uh, content. I think it's so important. And that's why I'm really honored to be adding to it with uh, uniquely Canadian content that will, uh, I think, provide a lot of value to our listeners. So essentially what I'll aim to do every show is 
equip our listeners with the facts and logic and stats, et cetera, that they need to counter leftist fallacies when they hear them in everyday conversation. One thing that strikes me is that fact-checking is no longer politically neutral. I think it used to be that we understood that facts and truth existed in this way that was above partisanship. It didn't sway one way or another. But, I mean, the idea of misinformation, disinformation, fact-checking, even all these websites like Snopes that when you and I were younger were uh, really the authority on debunking internet untruths, these are all compromised in a way. So the idea of actually fact-checking the fact-checkers in some respects and and using a, an approach that, as you just lay out there, is, is sticking to the facts has never been more important. Oh, for sure. And uh, there's just a lot of spin. So one example would be um, one of my favorites was when I was working at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, teachers unions in Ontario would always talk about cuts that Doug Ford was making, even though he had brought uh education spending to all-time highs in Ontario. They kept talking about these cuts. Well, what they actually meant was that he was slowing the rate at which their salaries would go up. So that's a pretty clever spin. I mean, slowing the rate at which you get a raise is not the same as deducting money from your salary. So I think the left uh, gets pretty creative in the way that they spin issues. Um, and unfortunately, there's just been kind of a void in the media, the legacy media. Nobody calls them out on this. And it's not even that I'm taking a partisan approach. It's, you know, when conservatives say and do silly things, I call them out too. But oftentimes in the left, and we uh, do see, I think, a bit of a tilt in the legacy media toward leftist thought, um, and it's all very uniform. Uh, you know, I think that there is a spot, certainly a market opportunity here for some, not necessarily fact checking, but just looking at statistics, trends, honestly, not with a partisan, you know, ideological lens, um, but just reminding Canadians that, uh, you know, these are this is actually what's going on and offering an alternative uh, look at things. Yeah, and I would also say, not to start writing how you should do your shows or anything, but I, I think there's an appetite for taking these things out of the abstract realm. I mean, this has been one of my grievances historically with conservatives, is that they talk a lot about low taxes, good, low regulation, good, which, okay, fine. But if you're not on board with the ideology, if you're not an ideologue or a partisan, it's not always clear how that relates to you. When people say, you know, taxes are too high, okay, tell me, how much is it costing you? And we say this carbon tax rebate that the government's giving you isn't actually covering what they're taking from you. Exactly how much is this costing your family? And I, I think that's often been missing in discussions that are very sometimes abstract and academic. Absolutely. And uh, that's why I'm so thankful to be uh, partnering, working with True North on this, because I think so often we get swept away in the virtue of a lot of these stories. Uh, some of them might be feel good stories. For example, you know, when Trudeau or Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh talk about the rich and, and, you know, how they need to pay their fair share. These are very emotional arguments mm -hmm. or uh, True North's coverage um, on, uh, you know, the quote unquote mass graves uh, out West. Um, I think that it's important. I think we owe it to all involved and certainly to the mass public that we're reporting these stories to, to give the full story, not to get swept away in emotion. Um, and unfortunately that is just what happens too often in our politics and their, you know, friends in the legacy media. Yeah, very well said. Well, I know you only have a little bit under your belt as far as this show is concerned, but what's on the show this week? 
So this week we're talking about housing affordability in Canada. And this one is actually, I'm really excited about. Uh, there's Normally we focus on leftist fallacies and you know things that the leftists like to repeat and reiterate. But I would say that across the political spectrum uh, in Canada, there's a lot of, um, not necessarily misinformation, but a lot of common phrases that are used with regard to you know the causes behind housing affordability that are just uh, not true and they're easily debunked with stats or um, other facts that uh, you know from Statistics Canada for example um, again it's not a partisan approach uh, to this issue and when you dig into um, issues like for example this week we're focusing as I said on housing for affordability there's actually a surprising amount of common ground that you can find with people on the opposite side of the political mm -hmm. aisle I mean we don't deny that there's a housing, housing affordability crisis in this country um, we do maybe disagree on some of the culprits behind it and certainly on some of the solutions um, and those are the points that we'll be going through this week all right. Well, it's a great show. Reality Check with Jasmine Moulton comes out every Wednesday on True North. So uh, you can get caught up and then uh, start watching them in real time as they happen starting today. Thank you so much, Jasmine, and welcome to the team. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Andrew. Jasmine Moulton, host of Reality Check on True North. That'll do it for us for today. I'm actually away next week, so there won't be any editions of The Andrew Lawton Show, but I encourage you to go to tnc.news and check out all of my colleagues' fantastic work there, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.